You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is Danny Anderson welcoming you again to the, another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Today we have a really kind of abstract and possibly strange episode, but that's because of Michael Farmer. And so um, we're going to be talking, I think I'm going to name the show Rockstar Face. And uh, we're just going to be talking about the aesthetic of rock and roll musicians who have to look uber serious in photography. And I think we might take it some interesting places. But um, Michael, now this show was kind of your fault um, because a few a couple months ago, you sort of teased me on Facebook with a picture of Don Henley looking especially dork or, you know, self-serious. And so Always. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it's amazing because I posted that one picture and then I, I, you and I and, and a bunch of other people, I think, found other pictures of him and his hair is radically different. And all the pictures, <laughs> face is exactly the same and the same punchable face. <laughs> Stupid Don Henley face. That's right. <laughs> well, and joined, joining in on that conversation, which led to this whole show, um, there was some really great back and forth with one of your former students, Mike Gruber. So Mike has uh, agreed to come on the show and join us today. Mike, welcome. Greetings. Thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. Um, thanks for being here. This is uh, kind of an ideal episode for me. It sort of comes out of nowhere and it's seemingly <laughs> silly, but I think it might actually be kind of enlightening about something. And so, to Very have, little preparation. That's always nice. I found an article. <laughs> I found an article. There's a little bit of research in this one. Um, but Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, and how do you know Michael and all that sort of thing? Yeah, well, I'm I'm from Central Minnesota originally, but I'm living on the North Shore of Massachusetts right now. I am in my uh, last year, last semester actually, at uh, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, where I am an MDiv student. And uh, it's it's my intention, our intention, really, as as a family, to return back to Minnesota when we're done here, and uh, we'll probably be entering into clinical chaplaincy particularly working with vets. I think that's the, the, the vocational trajectory anyway for now. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, so the, the connection with the show, though, is I was, a, as you said, I was a former student at, at uh, the, the esteemed Crown College, uh, the jewel of the Midwest, really. Uh, <laughs> the Harvard with, of Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Michael was uh, one of my profs, and I would spend countless hours in his office drumming about all sorts of stuff but uh but yeah does michael make you call him dr farmer <laughs> i don't think i i know I, I never other than my freshman classes i never mentioned it but no students call me michael while they're still students really i always yeah. i always imagine you making um victoria call you dr farmer um and, and yeah does she I told my when my nieces were born, I told my sister uh, that I wanted them to call me Doctor Farmer. Do they abide by that request? No, they call me Uncle Michael. You know, we met uh, we met one of the Grubbs children at Christmas, and I guess Katie has them call us Mister Michael and Miss Victoria. And I corrected her in their restaurant. 
<laughs> awesome. That that's the Michael Farmer we all know and love of the Christian Humanist podcast. I should add, uh, as part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, we all are. Well, Mike, uh, thanks for joining us. This is awesome. Um, I'm really excited to to get about this, uh, to get talking about this. I think the joke originally came from Michael because I kind of famously don't like the Eagles, and and I think on a previous episode of the Christian Humanist podcast, I actually talked about how I don't like Walden because there used to be a commercial on MTV with Don Henley trying to raise money for Walden Pond <laughs> and that oh, sure, and yeah. that made me not Man, like Thoreau. <laughs> you are committed to your hatred of Don Henley. And so, this is a, the 1970s. Yeah. It's a, a, a decades long hatred. That's right. It's a passion. Yeah. Uh, uh, Henry David Thoreau had a swimming pool shaped like a dollar sign, right? <laughs> oh, I'm sure he did. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess let's get into this then. So what we're talking about is this tendency, I guess, to put it uh, in one way of in promotional materials and in public appearances, particularly male rock stars who have this sort of self-serious scowl or presentation of self, however you want to put it. And uh, and somehow the question just kind of came up while we were uh, bantering and, and we kind of got into deeper territory than one would expect possible from such a subject. And so do you guys have any initial thoughts on why this is? And maybe let's begin with when it began, because we were talking right before we recorded that when you think of like the early days of rock and roll, like Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry and and even Elvis, you don't really imagine you don't have these images of this kind of uber serious artist. Right. And that's something that seems to arise sometime in the 60s. What are your thoughts on that, guys? Yeah, it's definitely not mid 20th century like it's it's it unless you well i guess if you consider the early 1960s still part of the mid 20th century but but like when you think of the advent of of mass recorded music for entertainment starting in the 20s and 30s that's you don't have the kind of sobriety the 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 stoicism that that we saw from 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 people like mr henley and so I don't know. I, I mean, Doctor Henley. What <laughs> Doctor <laughs> Henley? <laughs> Maybe he probably does have an honorary doctorate. <laughs> sure he does. Yeah. Um, but well, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it it doesn't it. Nineteen fifties era music. Yeah, you don't really associate Chuck Berry or whoever with with a lot of this. But I don't yeah, know. Chuck Berry guess. definitely didn't have rock star face. No, no, he was always like, looked like he was pleased as punch to be wherever he was, right? Um, and so, um, Michael, what are, your, what are your thoughts on this? I We were talking beforehand, as you said, and I guess it's too bad we didn't rec- uh, record that because that's where I hit on it. But I, I think in the 50s, you get rock star face with jazz musicians. So if you think of the cover of Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, for example, probably the most famous jazz album, uh, he looks pretty serious on that. And I mean, he looks cooler than Don Henley because he has something to back up his self-seriousness. Um, and, and he looks serious in a way that you don't associate with previous generations of jazz musicians. I mean, maybe the bebop era, but certainly before that, the swing stuff like Mike was talking about. Those guys don't tend to look super serious. And I think it might be a it, it might be a reaction to a music that was once considered populist becoming art. Cause that's what happens to jazz in the 1940s and fifties. This thing that was once a thing for teenagers to dance at 
uh, now becomes, you know, the serious expression of serious artists. And I'm not putting uh, 1950s jazz down at all, but I think they they may have felt the need to overcorrect in a way. And and certainly by the 70s, you get uh, art, jazz, uh, excuse me, you get rock and roll turning from something that young people dance to, to art with a capital A, or at least in the minds of the people performing it. And so I, I wonder if that's where it comes from. Now, it doesn't make sense that it would continue for another 50 years, uh, <laughs> as, as it has. But I, I, I wonder if maybe that's its origin. And what's interesting, too, is that that like even the context, like I was thinking during the era of swing, you don't see Benny Goodman up there with the, I mean, he's, he's driving or whatever you want to call that, but he's like, even in an era that you would most associate with a attitude of, of somberness and seriousness, like even when Goodman is in, you know, 1940s era war films, he's still up there pretending everything's hunky dory and it's a good time despite millions of, 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 of people ostensibly dying in all sorts of different theaters of war, but because yeah. the music was meant to be a distraction, right? I mean, distraction is, is, is not a very nice way to put it, but the, the music, the music was an escape for people. I mean, nobody listens to swing music cause they want to feel the seriousness of the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I know. I remember during um, Ken Burns's, 2000 part series on jazz. Um, do you remember? Um, uh, I was happened to be working at the PBS station at that time. I think, so what Ken Burns does his, his way is to find a kind of notable, famous intellectual type person and just kind of give the project over to them and do whatever they say. And he, he puts his stamp and style on it and GM's money. Cashes the checks. Yeah. Yeah. And GM's money. And, um, <laughs> but so in that case, it was Wynton Marsalis. And so Wynton Marsalis was really into Louis Armstrong at that time. And Four of the 10 episodes were about Louis Armstrong. And and so I think there was a way in which he represented this older kind of uh, more jovial presentation of jazz that was replaced, as you say, in the kind of Blue Note era. And and I think that Louis Armstrong had, or excuse me, Wynton Marsalis at that point in his, his career was trying to reappreciate this older tradition and like really focused on that era of jazz. And so... And I think he kind of he really didn't like the um, especially like, you know, fusion and that kind of experimental stuff. He really hated that stuff. Uh, or that's the way it came across in that show, at least. And so there is some way in which that show kind of represents the two sides of jazz there. And I wonder if at some point in the 50s when, you know, the kind of the, you, you those classic jazz images of Thelonious Monk and all these people, that kind of blue note style, the black and white kind of stark photography, very shadowy, um, and people looking very pensive and thoughtful all the time. I wonder if that has something to do with a transition towards like an individual genius, and we're supposed to sort of worship that altar away from a product for the masses, kind of. I, I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that. That is definitely a movement you get in jazz, and I mean, Armstrong is... When the story of jazz gets told, Armstrong is always the person who invents it, uh, but it takes a while to get there. And I think Wynton Marsalis was trying to make Armstrong a genius within his own context, right? Which he absolutely which he was. I'm not saying he wasn't. No, I'm not. Nor is it a shot at anyone who comes after him. It's just doing doing two different things. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would yeah. be like it would be like the difference. It would be to say like. 
Uh, I like Buddy Holly, so Steely Dan or whoever sucks. <laughs> or I like Steely Dan, so Buddy Holly sucks. I mean, they're not trying to do the same thing. There's not really a comparison between them. Right. I wonder if an interesting thought, too, that related to that is, is does American music transition from from corporate appreciation to individual appreciation in that in that same era right because i mean even the title i i mean people like benny goodman were were notable in their own right right it's always but but it's affixed with benny goodman and his orchestra or benny goodman and his band right and so you have this there and because of the instrumentation and whatever else there's this corporate sense of of appreciating the artist and so do we see a transition into into a kind of individuality that that brings about, you know, a, uh, a, a kind of cult of personality in American music artists? I don't know. Yeah. And I think later on, we want to talk about maybe how this owes some sort of debt to romanticism uh, and particularly figures like Byron, I think, is who you brought up, Michael. Right. And so um, but let's hold off on that for now. And let's talk about rock and roll specifically. Um, and I, to me now, this is just sort of a genera- generality. I think part of it rests in the transition from like a singles driven art form to a album driven art form um, and where even the album art then becomes part of the m- message of the music. I don't know. Yeah, you got you got space to have a big hyper serious picture of Donna Henley on a on a <laughs> on a 12 inch record that you wouldn't have on a seven. <laughs> well, when you open it up there, he's posing with Satan himself, as I think I said. I mean, I know. How can you tell him apart? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I can tell the difference, actually. I, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I don't remember what episode of what even podcast I was on when I was even talking about this. But when I was a kid, there was one of these Bible belt thumping guys who was preaching against rock and roll. And, uh, and so he showed us a, an inside fold out cover of hotel California and kept zooming into this obscure figure in the corner and told me that it was Satan. And, and so that was, that was jarring. <laughs> Let me just say that's worse than Don Henley. <laughs> you know, it's cool to hate the Eagles. Uh, and that's because they're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm perfectly fine being cool. <laughs> yeah, we we could talk about. Let's save the Eagles' hate for the end because I think there's some there's some interesting observations to make about about how hateable the Eagles are and and how punchable Don Henley's face is. <laughs> so at the same time, you're getting the move to albums as opposed to singles. I wonder, I I didn't, as I said, do any actual research for this. I wonder at what point people started listening with headphones, because you you think about the late 1960s as being the golden age of headphone music, uh, both, both in mono and in stereo. And I I think, I think in that move from communal to individual uh, appreciation, I think the headphones have to play a role. I mean, think about how intimate it is to listen to music on headphones and, uh, and, and they can speak just to you and then, you know, then they have to have something to say, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so, and so there's the technology is definitely part of this, right? Um, I, Michael, Mike, I'm sorry. Um, just to make the distinction clear, Mike and Michael, yeah. <laughs> um, you had mentioned, you said you want to talk about the Rolling Stones a little bit. Well, I, so yeah, I, I mentioned stones, just kind of the, the stones, uh, in an evidential way as kind of a data point about why I thought, so p- part of my overall, uh, 
thesis of why I think that this the, the kind of posture that we're talking about about the self seriousness and whatever else makes it a, a, a staple music promotion is that it's an attempt to provide sobriety and thoughtfulness to an art that commonly doesn't invoke traditional notions of of thoughtfulness and intellectualism and and some of the data points that I think would support that are things like the Stones you know thrashing their hotel room or Jimi Hendrix lighting his guitar on fire or Keith Moon and Pete Townsend like trashing their instruments after a successful set list or whatever. Right. So it's, there's this, there's this destructive sort of primitive element to the, the, the production of the music that is, is very, I don't know what you want to call it material. And like it, it's associated with speed and violence and whatever. And so but this, also joy, right? I mean, you like Keith Keith Moon's playing whatever you think of it is built on joie de vivre and him destroying the drums afterwards like an overflow of that it's animal from the Muppets yeah you know? yeah yeah it's yeah and it's animalistic really I think you know in like the self-destruction of the instrument is so anyway I I, I just I I I invoke the Rolling Stones as as an evidence of that and I just think that it's it's part of a, a of a a movement to use uh, kinds of displays of serious emotion in order to to inject them into an art that is never really associated with seriousness. That's that's part of my opinion anyway. But and I think that that image of the Stones. I mean, that, we're talking about the transition from when it, when it became went from Buddy Holly to you know whoever to Black Sabbath or whatever um, when. You think of the moment, I'm sort of picturing the distinction between those early Beatles albums where they're very kind of happy and, and silly on their covers and the Rolling Stones who try to look dangerous and uh, and, and sort of um, whatever angry, the kind of angry young man trope, which is a thing in England at this time. There's the play, uh, the famous uh, play, which... What's the name of it? <laughs> I can't remember the play right now. Uh, the first, uh, oh, look back in anger, uh, which is sort of the uh, the kind of archetype of the angry young man in England, which is becoming a thing at that time. And the Rolling Stones seem to pick that up almost to me as like a marketing chip to distinguish them from the Beatles in a lot of ways, mm. right? Mm. Um, but it becomes its own sort of trope then about seriousness and rock music. And later on, the Beatles, of course, do transition into a much more kind of artsy and serious band themselves. They always, because of maybe Ringo and Paul, but always still seem kind of um, silly, right? But um, but John and George never do, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and because they're so involved in psychedelic pop for so long, I mean, psychedelic pop just can't be serious. It's too childlike. It's too whimsical. So I think... I was I was trying to think of the the inside cover of uh, the White Album and 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 I mean think about if you if you've seen that think about how serious they look there or on the cover of uh, Let It Be as opposed to Sgt. Pepper's or really anything that comes before it even a Revolver which has a lot of weird stuff on it the cover is still pretty whimsical hmm. or the Rolling Stones on Aftermath because I mean on stage Jagger is kind of a doofus right mm -hmm. he he does that yeah. stupid with his elbows and I, I mean, he's, 
if he weren't so cool, he wouldn't be cool. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. but if you look at the cover of Aftermath, which in, in the U.S. anyway, the first song is Paint It Black, which is probably the first really serious Stone song. And and man, do they look it. They, they, uh, on, the, on the cover of that album, they, they look like they have something very important to tell you. Yeah, and so, I mean, I guess this is what I want to get at, because I feel like this is the genesis of this trope that we still live with today, right? And someone, I think Jeffrey Carter uh, chimed in on that, super fan Jeffrey Carter, uh, I think he uh, uh, chimed in on that, talking about the Oasis <laughs> in the early oh, 2000s, right? Speaking so, of uh, looking back in anger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, they sort of pulled it off as well in the 90s. But um, so it's a long-running uh, trope of rock music, but... I think we can identify the moment when it begins around this time for whatever reason. And so is it about world events? Is there like political reasons? Do you think, I mean, Vietnam is escalating at this point. Um, student protests are beginning and that kind of thing. Does that have something to do with the way the music then has to kind of match the mood of the consumer of that music in some ways? And therefore the, the seriousness of those times filters into the the marketing materials i guess i mean yeah the the anti-authoritarianism is already essential to the to the musical product right mm -hmm. i mean at least in the examples that i kind of cited with the stones and, and, and hendrix but yeah i mean does it do, yeah do, do the do the expressions do the emotional expressions of that music are they an attempt therefore to add some kind of sincerity to what becomes a sort of musical critique to the to an era that that people are are finding themselves disagreeing with. At least the consumers of this music find themselves disagreeing with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting. I'd have to think about that. I don't know. What do you guys think, Michael? You're the musician uh, and the historian of mu music in the in the group. I, I mean, it's just sort of a thought that came to me on the fly almost. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to think of how how much this is a product of political bands versus non political bands. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like like. Vietnam must have something to do with it because it has something to do with everything in pop culture in the, at the end of the 60s. But it, it would seem to me that even bands that aren't particularly political, Pink Floyd, for example, they still use serious rock face. <laughs> That's true. I just love this phrase. And so, uh, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and this is what I'm trying to get at. I think that there might be kind of a genesis for an appetite for darkness. And that's where this kind of is capitalized on in the promotional material from these record companies that then becomes part of rock music's general aesthetic, um, even for bands that are not particularly um, political. Like I'm thinking of like Black Sabbath's like War Pigs and all that sort of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. They can't be smiling with, with the materials for that. That just would not work, right? And so, um, but. And yet, and yet, the cover of the Free Will and Bob Dylan. With heads, a hard drain's gonna fall, and uh, help me out. Uh, Masters of War and all sorts of political <laughs> protests. <laughs> Isn't that a song? I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm just laughing because it's like the essential anti-war song, is it not? I mean, yeah, but, basically, or with God on our side, maybe, which is on uh, oh, a much shoot, more shoot. serious album cover. Oh, uh, that was a Guthrie. That was a Guthrie song first, isn't it? No, no, that's his. Uh, oh, but the. The, the cover of Free Will and Bob Dylan must be one of the most joyous album covers of all time. You know? Well, I mean, Bob Dylan's a special case, though, because he's always looking to subvert 
conventions and and perception of himself. He's always in the act of inventing himself, right? And this actually yeah. just came up on an uh, episode I just recorded yesterday that probably came out two weeks before this one um, with uh, Ed Simon. He has a, an essay in his new book about Bob Dylan, and we sort of talked about his constant and perpetual act of self-invention. So he's tricky to put into yeah. any, <laughs> into yeah. any kind and, of... And yeah. dude's got some serious rock face on the cover of uh, Blonde on Blonde, so... <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he uses it, it, it at times, but yeah, go ahead. You know, it just yeah. occurred to me, maybe that's what Mike Pence is doing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you gotta elaborate here. <laughs> you know, that, that expression Mike Pence always has, maybe he's just trying to imitate the uh, classic rock gods of his youth. <laughs> I, I, so he he remains expressionless during the, the the president's foibles, and he just kind of like eats it, or what? What's the? I've always thought he looked kind of like he was trying to pass a series of ball bearings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a name that hasn't come up yet, which is Jim Morrison. Yes, okay, and I, oh, I think okay. he's got to be part of this story. To me, the Doors are the worst of the uh, 1960s classic rock bands. I just. I, th- I find nothing redeeming them whatsoever. And in, in particular, Morrison's a terrible, terrible lyricist and frontman, but he thinks of himself as a real poet, right? And so he's got this, this I, look that goes along with it. I think the Doors are a perfect sort of transitional group to look at the way in which there might be kind of material reasons for certain rock bands to have taken on a more serious facade uh, to sell music in a more serious time. That I think it kind of extrapolates outside of that period. And then you get some a, a group like The Doors, which really kind of evoke this kind of romanticism, right? This kind of romantic hero, not romanticism in the kind of general sense, but uh, that, that very kind of historical time period. And, um, and I think, yeah, Jim Morrison certainly is self-serious out of a kind of egotism, right? Um, uh, and, and Mike, you had said something about Dorian Gray, I think, in, in, <laughs> on the Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, th- this whole motif, I think, is very, it, it, it's very Dorian Gray-esque, right? Where it's, it's the self-obsession becomes such a trope, and it's so, it, it becomes such a, a kind of spectator drama that you can't help but wonder, like, what's the inner life of of some of these people who are employing it? I mean, it, even even the reference to to to, to Jim Morrison that we just made that you, you can't help but wonder that is his own reflection of who he stylizes himself to be a reflection of how he understands himself, or is it a trope that he's willingly engaging in, or like you 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 become involved in the drama as a participant. So I don't know. I just, I I feel like it's such a, it's a story in and of itself, I guess. I mean, could the doors have, I mean, I don't know that they could have delivered those lines in a jovial way. I mean, I think that you almost have to be laughing at the lyrics. They're so silly, right? You know, and so like pretentious and self-serious. And so I don't know that they could present the material in any other way other than this sort of uber sincerity that um, that comes across as being kind of, I'm doing something really important. Otherwise, I think the facade falls away and everyone will just start laughing <laughs> with you. because. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But it must have worked because there are people who legitimately think Jim Morrison is some sort of poet. Yeah. 
Um, and, and so what's wrong with his poetry? Uh, it's <laughs> facile and stupid. <laughs> you know, Victoria years ago had a student who came to her and he wanted to be a poet. So he, he wanted to meet with her every week so that she could read his poetry. And what she, what she finally told him is, your poetry reads like the poetry of someone who doesn't read poetry. <laughs> and that's Jim Morrison. That's brutal. That is yeah. brutal. I don't know if she told him that, but that's what she told me. <laughs> he later got kicked out of school for stalking a girl. So, I oh. mean, maybe he is a poet. Or Jim Morrison. I mean, that sounds like something Jim Morrison would do. The Lizard King. <laughs> oh. Well, exactly. And and so this is, I mean, I, maybe Jim Morrison is the ultimate example of the ridiculousness of this, right? Certainly in moments, there's a time to take that posture, right? And, and you're thinking of like punk music in the 70s that's angry about politics and stuff. Most of the time, they're very kind of like serious, right? Um, with the exception of so folks like uh, the Dead Kennedys and stuff, which is very theatrical. Um, but um, but for uh, for the the vast majority of punk acts, it's natural to sort of take on this posture, right? And for kind of reasons that are connected to the music. In other cases, it seems like a worship of self that um, I think is just kind of. Uh, in in intolerable, right? And, and so, and I think Jim Morrison is sort of the icon of of that form of this uh, of this tendency. Or Henley, I mean. Okay, so I mean, maybe we should get <laughs> into Henley for a little bit. Um, and so the um um have we uh, the um I don't know where to begin with this. Um, so what is it with the Eagles, first of all, that make them kind of candidates for this uh, for this this discussion? The, in, in my opinion, I, I think the reason the Eagles get hoisted up to the platform they're in, in the hatred they receive, is because, <laughs> is because well, it's exactly because of the 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 reference you just made, which is that uh, they, they, they have no sense of self. They have no sense that really what they're best known for is a production of, of, of bar music. And you have this exploration by Henley and Frey into like, have you seen the Netflix documentary that they made that was on? I still haven't. Um, I tried to look for for a couple of years. I don't think it's on there anymore. It's really, I I I think it 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 speaks volumes really about their. Now, isn't there somebody in the band that Henley only refers to by his last name? He calls him Mister. Maybe it's Timothy B. Schmidt or something. Mister Schmidt. No, it, it's yeah, it's the guy that uh, that Joe Walsh replaced. I forget his name now. Joe Walsh, by the way, one of the few members of the Eagles not to do that thing. Joe Walsh was like a, uh, he's like the gorilla that played drums at Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah. The party animal. He's like when they, when, you know, um, 
uh, uh, Neil Young got brought into Crosby, Stills, and Nash, right? So Joe Walsh is sort of that bolt of energy that uh, loosens up a, a too tight room, I think. <laughs> yes. you know? uh, yeah. But also, also, Neil Young is super self-serious, too. It's true, but he's weird and he knows it, kind of. And so he doesn't come, yeah. he doesn't try to play sex god, right? You know? Well, that's... Um, <laughs> that's why Joe Walsh is so likable too is because he's able to depart from the, the intellectual squalor that is thinking that you are someone that you're not in being this, this incredible rock band that produces, you know, whatever we want to call Eagles. (laughs) Soft rock. (laughs) That's, that's the other thing. There's a masculinity issue here too, which is that that look is associated with this very tough masculinity. And let's face it, the Eagles made really wussy music. Yeah. And and to me, the Eagles were trying to kind of cash in on this free spirited sixties, you know, ethos of freedom and hippie love and all that kind of thing, but try to sell it to Midwesterners. Right. And, And so I think to me, they're just like a, a balderization of something that itself is not my favorite thing, <laughs> but, uh, but the, uh, the, you know, I'm not much of a hippie myself, but, um, but the, uh, but yeah, they're just to me is like a, an utterly commercial, uh, although undeniably talented. I mean, I don't want to like say that I, I deny that they're terrific singers and guitar players and drummers and all that kind of thing. Right. Um, but it's something about the way in which they're sort of unaware of their own kind of silliness uh, that, and maybe the, the guitar shaped swimming pool is the uh, the ultimate symbol of that, right? So. They think they're artists. That's I, I mean that that's what bothers me about about Don Henley's stupid face, right? It's it's the face of a man who is thinking about the deep things of life, and what does he come out with? Take it easy. <laughs> I don't think I think that's a Jackson Brown song, but you get my point. It is uh, originally. Yeah. These, these are yeah. songs that don't really have anything to say, and yet he's walking around like he's Rodin's thinker or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is one thing that puzzles me. One of my favorite musicians is Dwight Yoakam, as as Michael knows, and um, and the fact that he loves both the Eagles and Elvis, <laughs> two groups that I really have nothing good to say about. Um, uh, yeah, it baffles my mind that I love Dwight Yoakam so much. But yeah, uh, we have totally You're wrong about Elvis. But our <laughs> listeners can go listen to the City of Man episode where we talk about that if they're interested in knowing why Danny's wrong. <laughs> I'm, it's just not my thing, right? I, I appreciate the talent for sure. It's just, it's never kind of uh, spoken to me, man, or something. I don't know how to say it, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of music that's never reached me as like, you know, there's others that everyone likes, I realize are great, but have never gotten into like Led Zeppelin is one. Um, I, I get that it's great. It's just not my thing. And Elvis is probably I don't like that. Zeppelin either. And I, I think, I think they're also subject to this hyper seriousness too, even though they're singing songs about hobbits and stuff. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I mean, they're literally singing songs about Hobbit. Well, with Zeppelin, okay, that's another good transitional, um, topical transition to make there. Because I feel like with that group, you've got a group that's kind of like sexual in its nature, right? They are like, they are the sex god rock and rollers, right? And so the there's, I think a little bit, I mean, I guess as it with Jim Morrison was as well, but with with Zeppelin, you've got this idea that they're almost like preying on their groupies. Like, I mean, and they literally were, I mean, Jimmy Page was like literally 
icky behavior. He would never have survived the Me Too era, right? And and so I mean, didn't he live with a fourteen year old at one point? Yes, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's well, I didn't know it, that. it's horrifying. And then there's the mud shark story, which we can't repeat on the show. I don't even know what that is. Um, maybe I'm. You guys can all go Google mud shark Led Zeppelin. And, <laughs> is this uh, like boofing? It's it's one of the truly horrifying. So anyway, you're right. They're preying on groupies. They're gross. They're they're predatory. Okay, and so I guess it allows us to talk about sort of the gender issues here um, that are at play. And so I, I, I passed around to you guys, and I'll put the links up in the show notes. If you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, you'll find the show notes for this, and there'll be a couple links for you to check out. But I do feel like that there is a difference in expectations in the way that female artists um, are marketed and, and present themselves and, and male artists have, even in the same era, like Janis Joplin doesn't present rock star face very often. She seems like super happy to be wherever she is. Right. You know, and, and why do you think that is not necessarily about Janis Joplin specifically, but why, um, why are there different kind of gender expectations for this kind of music? I think the answer to that has to start with the fact that there are exponentially more male-fronted classic rock bands than there are female-fronted. There, there really aren't very many, right? There's Janis Joplin with Big Brother and The Holding Company. There's Heart. I mean, am I leaving, am I leaving anything major out there? And I, Yeah, and I guess yeah. a, a kind of... A, a die answer too is that because you have wider cultural expectations regarding masculinity and 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 feminine expressions of happiness and whatever that those are going to filter their way into into musical production too. So, um, so I think that probably has something to do with it. It's just the wider cultural uh, influences, but. And, and there are other, it's interesting, I mean, there are other options for female artists. I'm thinking about like Joan Jett um, very much embodies the the scowl, right, of, uh, of sort of yeah. rock star face. Um, but that it comes at the kind of, I don't know, so cost almost of, of having to sort of mimic men on some level. You know what I mean? I feel like in order to be accepted by that audience, she has to sort of, that's one of the options for her is to sort of um, be one of the boys kind of right. And um, I mean, Susie Quattro is kind of like this too at that time. Uh, I don't know who that is. Who's Susie Quattro? She was, wasn't she in happy days? Um, and then she had her own sort of like solo career. Wasn't she like, Pinky Tuscadero or, or Leather Tuscadero or somebody. I, I know that that's a thing, but I've only seen like four episodes of Happy Days. I'm yeah. sorry. Wait, that's a terrible show. That, that has not aged well at all. But, um, um, but no, um, but yeah, she's like another sort of female rock star who has this sort of heavy metal sort of aesthetic, right? But then you think of bands like the Go Go's. Um, who have to be, you know, fuzzy and light and, and shiny, and, and the Bengals to a large degree as well. Um, now the Bengals are interesting because they have like a number of characters that sort of embody sort of different versions of femininity, I think in that band. Um, but yeah, so, but I think that when you, when you compare like male options to female options, you've got like a different, different, different set of like, um, of, of opportunities for self-presentation. And I, and I, I mean, I don't know exactly what it is. One of the, I found some kind of series on the Atlantic, um, where they talked about women being asked to smile in the workplace and how that's kind of like sexist and demeaning, um, which I never really thought of before, but I guess that's probably true. And I know that like female professors are perceived by their students in different ways, right? Just uh, on, on the nature of their femininity. And, um, and so I think that 
um, that has to come into this discussion somehow. Now, um, how, I don't know exactly, but I'm just sort of curious what you guys think. I've heard of that phenomenon before, for sure. And I, I know it's been explored more prominently, and then the Atlantic is a good example of that. But, um, but yeah, I don't know how it factors into... into, into um, expectations of musical performance or whatever. But. I think it might be simple that that maybe that face that we're laughing at is meant to be sexy and men are not attracted for the most part to women whom they think are going to kill them. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? I think it, I think it might yeah. be as simple as that. I, I, that's very possible. That, I think that's very possible. Um, I, I also think that the idea of seriousness as like a, a critical expectation is something that's important. So I'm, I'm from like, I'm from Cleveland as said a million, million times on the show, but the, uh, we have the rock and roll hall of fame. And so I'm kind of grown up with these discussions about who should be in the rock and roll hall of fame and who should not. And it, it is true that rock journalism likes to give lots of praise and attention to acts that, seem serious that seem like true art right and part of the way you perform that is by these kind of pensive or scowling or serious looks like don henley likes to give that that's part of the package of 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 selling art rather than product if that makes sense right and and i do wonder if we think of female musicians not as serious artists but as performers um who are selling products themselves being the product. Right. And I mean, I think that there is something to that. And when you get an exception, like Joni Mitchell, for example, who's hardly a rock artist, but jo Joni Mitchell's a serious capital a artist. Right. Um, I, I don't know anyone who looks at the cover of blue and says, man, Joni Mitchell was a Fox. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like yeah. her seriousness is not about her being sexy. Right, and the and the sexiness that is usually uh, uh, part of that presentation more has to do with pop. And we think of like Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, or uh, it's not something that you associate with female rock artists or capital A artists, as you put it. But. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like almost like a a, a twitch that these some of these male artists um, have in order to be taken seriously i have to sort of look like i'm uh, on a book of poetry rather than a uh, a rock album right um and so yeah is it go ahead do you i wonder is it like an american uh, uh is it a music production equivalent to oscar bait right oh. where you have these these films like like okay a really good example is birdman i don't know if you've seen that yeah but at one best picture, I think in 17, Michael Keaton, who's phenomenal in it. Like he's great. I love Michael Keaton, but he, the, the way the film, it's just so self-obsessed and it's so, it, it's so self-conscious of itself and, and pandering to these audiences that it knows it wants to pander to. And I wonder if the, the presentation of musical artists has some kind of parallel where their where their seriousness is is automatically uh, interpreted in such a way by members of that community that are prominent or prestigious or something like that. 
Yeah, I think that sounds right to me, actually. I mean, when you think of someone like Robin Williams is the perfect example, whenever, I mean, you could tell when he was trying to win an Oscar, right? Uh, like he would choose a certain movie that was against type or something. And, uh, and, and it was a much more kind of serious um, uh, tone to the film, right? As a way to... Yeah, to, Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, yeah, Goodwill Hunting is good. The abominable patch Adams was, uh, <laughs> is another one. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, but you've got this sort of sense in which in order to be taken seriously by critics, um, I have to like put on this kind of face. Right. And, and I think that that actually, yeah. that works pretty well. Um, and, and again, why women are not like, uh, like included in that, uh, to as much a degree is interesting to me. Uh, I, I don't really have a, uh, an answer to that. Uh, Michael, I was just thinking about um, the move into the 1980s. It's it's telling to me that the women we've talked about, but the Bangles and the Go Go's, are 1980s artists, and that rock face seems much less prevalent in my imagination anyway in the 1980s. Like you get a different thing, and you still get some people doing it. Bono is as self serious as a rock star has ever been. Michael Stipe, yeah, <laughs> right. Um, but uh, I- I'm thinking. For whatever reason, of Morrissey. Oh yeah, and uh, maybe because you brought up Dorian Gray earlier, Mike. But but <laughs> <It's good>. <laughs> Mor- <laughs> Morrissey's self seriousness is so ironic that I'm not sure it can even count as self serious, right? <laughs> like like, and I, I I think there's a kind of surface to the 1980s that disincentivizes rock face. Maybe that's my theory. I haven't gone looked through all the liner notes to see who's, uh, who's rock facing it. But my favorite album cover of all time I shared with you guys is Iggy pops lust for life. And he seems to be like, like utterly just going at the, the notion of rock face. He's got this almost like yearbook photo of yeah, himself, yeah. Um, but he still looks like, like disturbing and like Iggy pop, but he's doing the sort of this, crap eating <laughs> smile like like you have in an email right or in a yearbook and, and so to me that's like my favorite album cover of all time because he's like aware of the stupidity of rock face right and so he's just taking he's inverting the poles almost on it and so i i love that um album cover so um and yeah and it's right out of that time period when uh i mean it, it it's coincides with the kind of rise of postmodernism and and irony is a thing at that point right and so i think maybe it frees people up to be a little more uh um uh less pretentious perhaps um about what they're doing i also think that even at the time wearing that hair and trying to look super serious was just going to look ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) interesting question i was thinking of is are we in an era where serious rock face is no longer applicable. Is it, is it, have we moved past it or is it still a contemporary phenomenon? I, I mean, you still see it. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to, I don't really consume as much music and frankly, the images aren't part of the package as much as anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause we're downloading things, right? So album cover, um, impact is, is sort of less a reason why people buy music now. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of just sort of, I don't know. That's like a really good question. I mean, I, I think of a band like, like the white stripes or something and, and they're like 
totally not serious, right? I mean, uh, I think that's great. But they, but they look serious. I mean, look at the yeah. cover of Get Behind Me, Satan or something. I mean, they, they're, they're, they don't smile on their album covers. And yet, again, it's it's kind of that Morrissey thing. Or maybe the Ramones. Yeah. The Ramones record covers all look super serious, but you can't take them seriously. Yeah. Because they're singing yeah. songs about sniffing glue at Rockaway Beach or whatever. <laughs> you, know, you know? So I, I think the... I, I think irony has to have something to say here. There, there's no irony whatsoever in the Eagles, right? They're absolutely straightforward, uh, even though I, think, I, I suspect they're as cynical as anybody else. Yes. From country artists, too, maybe. I think you could include in that, for sure. Um, yeah, I was thinking, I mean, my favorite style of music that I probably consume now is, is like what they call Americana, right? And so, I mean, you see someone like Sturgill Simpson or, or Jason Isbell, right? And I, and I think that they generally are not smiling on their album covers and, and that sort of thing. Um, and yet their music doesn't take itself at that seriously. Uh, there's, there's a way in which the Eagles music takes itself seriously along with the images. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not exactly what sure with, but that's a really good question. I mean, are we at a point where all of these, there's no escaping a cliche. And, and, and maybe that's what drove Kurt Cobain insane is he knew that even any escape from a cliche is in itself a cliche at that point. Right. And so, yeah. uh, and so he had this kind of rather nihilistic <laughs> um, response to it all, but um, but the, yeah, because the, the yeah, you, you, you definitely get that in the 90s, right? I mean, the, the whole alternative era is uh, it's it's too big to say the whole era. There, there's a there's a very large stream of the alternative era that is hyper self-serious, albeit in a very different way than they were in the 1970s. It was not so much. I have something important to say as uh, this world is shot to hell and I don't care, man. I, I think that's it. Yeah. Um, and, and where we are now with like Mumford and Sons or whatnot. Uh, you know, I don't, I know Michael hates Mumford. And Sons. <laughs> I really hate Mumford and Sons. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there were, but they made their reputation critically about being sincere, right? That was kind of the, I and mean, whether you agree with that or not, that was the, the way that rock critics sort of talked about them. And, uh, and, and so, yeah. And I always saw him smiling um, in his, uh, in his promotional material. Right. And so maybe that, that's what he was going for there. And that doesn't mean it was any less inauthentic, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but it was just something else, a, a new way to sell things. Um, yeah. You know, and I think that the, the idea of the rock critic is, uh, is really important. I, I found this academic article called um, all rock and roll, all rock and roll is homosocial by Helen Davies. And I'll, I'll put a link to it. I don't think I can legally share the PDF, <laughs> but uh, I'll put a link to it and you can find it on your own. But there's one, um, like line in here about rock critics where she says rock critics have been responsible um, since the 1960s um, for deciding which artists are credible and therefore good and valuable and which are not and therefore bad and worthless. It is unsurprising that credibility has almost always been denied to female artists. I want to um, examine exactly what constitutes credibility and why women can never fulfill this definition. And, and I think that that's, uh, I mean, when you look at someone like Joni Mitchell, even today, people don't take her as seriously as they do Bob Dylan, even though, frankly, Bob Dylan never took himself that seriously. Bob, it was all a big joke to Bob Dylan. Right. But, um, yeah. but the still is, it is the, the, the critical, <laughs> the critical establishment doesn't consider Joni Mitchell in the same conversation as, as, uh, as Bob Dylan, or it hasn't, um, traditionally. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that that's a hundred percent 
true. I think I think she's probably as respected as any of those as any of those guys, and certainly more than anybody else in that Laurel Canyon scene she comes from. Yeah. And that's I a, mean, Dylan's a generation older than her in terms of when the records came out. So I, I, the, the fair comparison would be to somebody like James Taylor or Jackson Brown. And I, I mean, I, I think it's pretty inarguable. She's better than those guys. Yeah. Her music's aged way better than theirs. Um, I think for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. Yeah. But I think it's a fair question to ask. Um, who was the first woman inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame? Do either of you know? Oh Lord. Um, I should know oh. that. Um, Oh, I know. Yeah, you lived in Cleveland. I, I'm going to guess Aretha Franklin, but I don't know. That, that's just, I don't know. Aretha Franklin, who is, I mean, am I right? doesn't do that at all, right? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. Oh, wow. Are. Okay. Yeah. That was just the guess. Um, it was yeah. absolutely Aretha Franklin. So, yeah. I, I mean, and maybe that's a gendered thing, and maybe it's a ethnic thing. I mean, maybe, ooh, how to, how to say this without, without coming off weird. Uh, maybe black people are already cooler than white people, and so they don't have to put on that stupid face. Um, that's very interesting. Um, then you have Prince, right? Who, who again is an idiosyncratic artist, right? He's a he's an I mean, artist. Prince put himself. on every face at every time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Um, very true. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of the cover of Love Sexy now. Unfortunately. <laughs> well, you're welcome uh, for that. Well, let's. Can we go into the idea of romanticism? Because I think that this does have, I mean, this commercial, I think it's a commercial ploy, this uh, to market oneself as credible and serious so that rock critics will, critics will write about you in a Rolling Stone and, uh, and you might get terrible movies made of you later on in your life or after you're dead. And, uh, but I think it does have some connection to romanticism. And I know this came up in our, our Facebook discussion. Michael, do you want to begin with that talk? Um, like how this, how you can sort of see these tropes early on. Well, and, and I, I don't really know much about the marketing of Lord Byron, but I, I think he is certainly an early pioneer in the sort of thing rock stars were doing. This kind of uh, ne'er-do-well, traveling, handsome, dangerous uh, artist. But, I mean, serious, serious artist at the same time. Uh, at the same time, he's, you know, betting all of these all of these women all over Europe. I mean, re- really, he, he is the first rock star in a certain in a certain way of thinking, even though he didn't, as far as I know, sing anything. So I, whether or not they're thinking Lord Byron, I think they're certainly cut from that mold. And, and so it makes sense that they would try to imitate not just his uh, popularity and sexual appeal, but also his seriousness. I don't know Byron super well. Does he have funny poems? Gosh, I don't know romanticism super well, so um, I can't think of one. Um, yeah, but yeah. Um, Mike, do you have thoughts on romanticism or anything? That's totally beyond my <laughs> on anything that I could contribute meaningfully to. So, but our images that we do, I mean, when we see movies about these people, they, I mean, they look, they dress them like rock stars, right? Uh, and, yeah. And, and and I think a lot of rock stars take their look from, especially in the '60s, from those uh, that those romantic kind of uh, outfits, right? And, and, and you know, the, the the tortured artist thing or the anti-hero, the Byronic hero. I think I think in some sense the rock star archetype is of the anti-hero they're not supposed to be nice guys that's why everybody hates paul mccartney yeah yeah that is true yeah 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 and and i think that what's interesting so those those artists were kind of counter-cultural right so they're kind of dangerous and and to 
economic systems and and that sort of thing, right? Um, the I'm talking about the romantics, and I think it also applies to. I mean, even in the 50s, that's an initial response to rock and roll. Generally, is that it's sort of a dangerous type of music, right? Um, and so, there's something about taking on this pose of seriousness that makes the that makes that dangerous attitude something that's actually palpable I, I, in some ways if if you were I don't, I don't know how to say it. and this is why someone like Iggy Pop is so sort of off-putting right because he doesn't put on the face of seriousness he's well and Jello uh, from uh, Dead Kennedys is another another but example I mean right? Iggy Pop does put on the face of seriousness in the sense that he's up on the stage cutting himself with broken glass <laughs> you know when he's with the Stooges so I mean, he's still got the Byronic hero thing down. And that that's why that album cover is funny. <laughs> but there's something about that act that is like critics can't do anything with. But if you have this sort of intellect, cerebralness, I guess is what I'm going after here. If you have this, this pose of being cerebral and intellectual, then we're somehow willing to take you seriously, which may also explain why we're not willing to take women as seriously because we don't culturally – give them, you know, intellectual and the ability to be intellectual in the way that we do men. Right. And so that could be why they're denied the ability to scowl <laughs> in their promotional. Uh, I'm, I mean, I, th I think it's, it's pretty undeniable though, that basically all of the exciting artists from the past five years have been women. And I'm trying, I'm trying to think if any of the ones I'm thinking of do the rock face at all. I mean, somebody like St. Vincent has no need to do the rock face because she's already an alien from outer space, you know? I'm She's, totally unaware of this act. <laughs> oh, you don't know St. Vincent? I'm kind of out of it in terms of contemporary stuff. Mike, you're in the same boat. I, yeah, I'm, I'm the same one. Yeah. Or I was thinking Lydia Lovelace, who uh, she's an she's an alt country singer. Oh. I mean, for for a while, her whole thing was people would say she'd beat you up or whatever. But the the cover of her most recent album features her sitting there with a coonskin cap on. So I mean, she's she's not having any of it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think certainly in very recent times, the culture has shifted in a way that opens up more of more expressive opportunities, I think, for women. I think that's undeniable, like and not just not just because of me, too. I think this is um, something goes back, you know, several years. And so what we're talking about is kind of an artifact of maybe the 90s and before, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, but yeah, so certainly, yeah, there are, I mean, I don't know. I'm thinking of like Adele. I mean, that's the depth of my yeah, cultural yeah. knowledge, right? She seems pretty, she's got the soul singer kind of uh, uh, album art usually, right? Yeah. I wonder, Until you hear a laugh. <laughs> that's, does the, the style of expression have to match a genre? I would, mm. My suspicion is yes, right? I mean, the, the intuition is that that pop music, you have a greater license to associate with some attitudes that, say, uh, the kind of singing that Adele does doesn't. Yeah. No, Katy Perry, for example, right? I mean, is yeah. not under the same sort of uh, pressure. Uh, to and when, and when she tried to be, when she tried to be an artist and an activist on her most recent record, she got laughed out of the room, as you know, well she should have been because she it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, um, but no, it's a good point, and I think you, I think Mike's right. I think that the idea that genre has, I mean, if this is a part of marketing, 
then marketing is a genre question in a lot of ways. And so absolutely, I think those two things are related for sure. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't really have anything else to add to this conversation. Did you, were there more that you guys wanted to say? How familiar are either of you with bro country? Well, just that I don't like it. <laughs> I, just, I just wonder, I just wonder how much the bro country guys are doing the rock face. Cause I, well, when I referenced country in the earlier conversation, I was referencing contemporary. Country, oh, gotcha. not, not, uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm shamefully somewhat, uh, uh, familiar with quite a bit of the genre. So my and, intuition's right then, right? They're all, yes. they're all, yeah, yeah. It. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm scrolling through iTunes right now as I'm just looking at that. I mean, let's see here. Eric Church. Yep. For sure. Jason Aldean. Yep. For sure. Uh, Justin Moore. Oh my goodness. What a, what a, what a transgressor. So yeah, we've got, we've got Randy Hauser. I mean, yeah, all of these guys are doing it. So uh, what about the female artists? The fee, uh, well, so it depends, right? I mean, if you got uh, some of the Miranda Lambert albums, Sometimes she does, sometimes she doesn't. Uh, I think it depends on on the the theme of the album. But again, these the contemporary country doesn't really put out themed albums in the way that that other musical genres do. So it, it's hard to say if there's some kind of purpose behind why they're making why female artists are making sober looking faces, or if it's just part of a a gimmick to get people to buy it. I don't know. That's a really good, I mean, point to come back to the idea of albums. We're kind of now past the idea of albums again. I mean, we're much more in a singles environment. Um, certain genres, I think Americana still works kind of in the, the albums environment a little bit more. Um, R&B does, weirdly enough. There are a lot of huge contemporary R&B album, album, states of, you know, statements. Yeah. Janelle Monet had one last year. Beyonce's Lemonade, of course. Solange had a big one. Frank Ocean. Yeah. Yeah, and those are more, I think, to make, I don't just when you're setting out to make an album of a collection of songs, it is a more serious endeavor than a song to sell for a couple of months at a time, right? You know, and so I think maybe since that we largely, other than maybe in some of these subgenres, have moved past the idea of albums um, and more back into the the singles era, um, maybe that's loosened things up for the uh, the marketing. It's just not as serious a form as it was back in the day, uh, and and I think that's that's a possibility there. So, um, fellas, I don't. I mean, Mike, do you have any last thoughts? No, I mean, I don't know. I think we, we all still hate the Eagles. So <laughs> that's the important thing here. <laughs> I, I just secretly wish that something would, you know, come out about the Eagles and everyone would hate them as I do. But I don't know. I think it's we're, pro- we're past that. <laughs> if people don't hate them, I mean, what else needs to come out? <laughs> what are you hoping that like they dropped an atomic bomb and you'd never heard of it? <laughs> I don't know. And they I killed know. David Bowie. I know that I'm going to get all kinds of uh, blowback as I always do when I tease the the, the Eagles, um, and and I honestly don't have a great answer for why I do, I dislike them other than the seriousness coupled with a lack of self awareness of their own silliness. Yes. Right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I I really enjoy like self-aware silly music right you know music yeah, that kind of knows sure. what it is and the fact that the eagles won't own up to it just kind of drives me crazy yeah. <laughs> listening listening to the eagles was fine before i knew the personalities of the people that actually made the music yeah 
It was totally, it was totally fine before I knew that Don Headley was just a total, you know what? And then it ruined it for me. You know what though? Boys of Summer is a great song. This is true. I do like that song. um, And yeah, um, and I have to, I have to give him credit. Um, He didn't write it though. That's a Mike Campbell song. Oh, is that right? From from Tom Petty. He might have written the lyrics. Yeah, but uh, Tom Petty's songwriting partner, Mike Campbell, wrote that song. Which now it'll make sense to you because it sounds just like a mid '80s Tom Petty song. I can hear Tom Petty singing that now. Now that you mention that, yeah. But that's a good song, and at the very least, if Henley didn't write the lyrics, he had the sense to to sing it, which you know. Yeah. It's more sense than I would normally give Don Henley. And, and he's got a, a distinctive <laughs> voice, right? Uh, and, I mean, you hear Don Henley singing, you know who it is. So um, if I just didn't have to look at his rock star face, I would be uh, I would be all happy. Um, the many faces of Don Henley. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, we I think probably offended somebody out there at least once today. So if you have any uh, responses, uh, please uh, get back in touch with the, the show. If, uh, you can always find us on Facebook. If you go to the Facebook page, I always post the show notes there. We usually get follow-up conversations going from there. Um, Twitter is a great place to uh, to speak back at us. Um, but by all means, please make sure you go to iTunes and uh, rank and uh, like the show and, and follow it and, uh, and share it with your friends. These conversations are kind of fun. Um, Michael Farmer, thanks for uh, introducing me to your awesome friend Mike Gruber. Um, yeah, I can Thanks imagine for coming on the show, Mike. I can imagine how fun he was to have in class. This is this has been great. Well, I don't know about that, but it's my pleasure. Thank you. All right, fellas. Uh, for uh, Mike Gruber and Michael Farmer, I am Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Yeah.